The sermon uh, that I'm going to be reading this morning comes from a series of sermons. Uh, it's two volumes. They're, um, together they make up about this much, uh, which just goes to show you uh, how much one small uh, couple of chapters in the Bible can be uh, uh, broadened and, and deepened. Um, but rather than reading them all, I'm going to read one of them. Um, we all know that you know summer reading services are tough enough to get through as it is. Uh, so I'm going, to try to, uh, I'm going to try to focus on the first one. These sermons, by the way, are from a fellow named Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote them in the 1950s, but they're really, really good. And so I hope that the word of the Lord, uh, you will hear the word of the Lord this morning as I, as I read it. So rather than covering all of them, I'm going to start with a bit of a uh, context of the Sermon on the Mount. So the chapter Matthew 5 through 7 is the very famous Sermon on the Mount, uh, the sermon that you know, most of us uh, know, many of us know the Beatitudes off by heart. Um, and it's most famous for the Beatitudes, the blessed R's. And many of us think that that's the sort of new code, that's the new Ten Commandments, and in some ways it is. But what Lloyd-Jones says is that they are not primarily ethical codes or something given to the disciples which were only applicable at the time. Rather, he says that the Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a great and grand, perfect elaboration of what our Lord called his new commandment. His new commandment, the one that was given in John 13, verse 34 and 35, is this. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. A guest preacher, but that's not a guest the preacher. Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a grand elaboration of that command. If we are Christ's, and if our Lord has meant that word for us, that we should love one another as he has loved us, it is the Sermon on the Mount that shows us how to do that. It is a way of showing what it means to live in God's kingdom. It's a sort of constitutional document of the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom of heaven is a kingdom which is to come. It's going to come. But it is also a kingdom which has come. Jesus says to us, the kingdom of God is among you. He says that to his disciples. And within you. The kingdom of God is in every true Christian and in the church. It means that the reign of God, the reign of Christ, and that Christ is reigning today in every true Christian right now. The kingdom has come, the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom is yet to come. So there's nothing so much dangerous as to say that the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with us as modern Christians today in 2019, any less than it did when, when Lloyd-Jones first preached this in 1950. It is something that is meant for all Christian people. It is a perfect picture of the life of the kingdom of God. That's why Matthew, uh, who was speaking to the Jews, Matthew was kind of talking directly to the Jews, trying to convince them that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus was the Messiah. This is why he puts the teaching concerning the kingdom of God at the very forefront of the gospel. For the great purpose of this Sermon on the Mount is to give an exposition to expose the kingdom as something which is essentially spiritual. It is something which governs the hearts and our minds, governs our outlook, that governs the way we live and act. Far from being something which leads to great military power, the thing that the Jews were looking for at the time, we could say the thing that gives us the, what we might be looking for is cultural power or something of that sort. Far from giving us power in that way, 
To be part of the kingdom of God is to be poor in spirit. In other words, we are not told on the Sermon on the Mount, live like this and you will become Christians. Rather, we are told, because you are Christians, live like this. This is how Christians ought to live. These beatitudes, meekness, poor in spirit, is how Christians are meant to live. We sometimes mistake, I think, spiritual as being pie in the sky. We, I think we sometimes hear the word spiritual, and we think, oh, it, it's something beyond us. It doesn't really matter in my day-to-day life. But that's not how Scripture talks about it. The spiritual is the real. It is potentially the more real. And it has real effects on our material lives today and the world around us. The point is that a life lived according to the Sermon on the Mount is one that has been infused by grace, by the certain knowledge of God's perfect kingdom in which God reaches out to the sinner and forgives them and loves them so much that he died for them. So, why should we study it? Why should we try to live it? Because the Lord Jesus died to enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount. He died for us. He died so that we could live out these these ways of being. Why? That he might purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works, says the Apostle Paul. He means that he died in order that I might now live the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus died so that we can live like this right now. He has made it possible for me and for you. Which leads to the second reason why we should study it. Because in reading on the Sermon on the Mount, nothing shows us the absolute need of the new birth and of the Holy Spirit and of his work within. The Beatitudes crush us to the ground. They show me my utter helplessness. Were it not for the new birth, for our baptism, for our life in Jesus, we would be undone. Read it and study it and face yourself in the light of it. Can you really love your enemies? Do you feel blessed when you mourn? Do you rejoice when you're being persecuted and when people are insulting you because of Jesus? I don't. So if you read this, it will drive you to see your ultimate need of rebirth and the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing so, that so leads us to the gospel and to the grace of Jesus as the Sermon on the Mount. If we live according to the sermon, we become like God because of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So if you want to be filled, if you want to be blessed, don't seek some mystical blessing somewhere. Don't rush to church meetings hoping you will get it. Face the Sermon on the Mount. Face its implications and its demands on your life. See your utter need, and then you will get it. It's there that you will find a direct road to blessing. I'll give you the reading first. So that's the basic introduction that Lloyd-Jones gives to the sermon. He says, this is why we should read it. This is why Jesus put it there. He goes on to talk about the particular uh, part of the Beatitudes, the blessed ours. He says that they contain general lessons for all of us, and there are about five of those lessons. So the first lesson of the Beatitudes, the blessed ours, is this. 
that all Christians are to be like this. Not just saints, not just clergy, not just elders, not just deacons. The Beatitudes are not a description of offices like office or like elder or deacon or pastor or priest. They are a description of the characteristics of the people of God. And from a standpoint of character and what we are meant to be as Christians, there should be no difference between one Christian and another. So that's the first thing. All Christians are to be like this. The second thing is that all Christians are to manifest all of these characteristics. So in that way, it's a little bit different than spiritual gifts that Paul talks about a little bit later in some of the epistles. The spiritual gifts, some have the gift of prophecy, others have the gift of teaching, and so on. Those are things that, um, you know, uh, Megan might have a particular gift, and I have a different gift, and the fact that I don't have that doesn't make me any less or more of a Christian. That's not the case with the, the uh, Beatitudes, the characteristics that are embodied by them. We are all called to be poor in spirit, meek, etc. Okay, so it's a kind of an all or nothing kind of deal. Medical doctor. The third thing is that none of these things, none of these descriptions of character refer to what we would call a natural tendency. So each of us have characters, uh, characteristics that are given naturally. Some of us may be extroverted, some of us may be introverted, some of us may be gifted in certain ways. That's not true for the Beatitudes and the manifestation of them. It is a disposition which is produced by grace alone and the operation of the Holy Spirit upon us. Nobody by birth or nature is like this. Nobody by nature is poor in spirit. Nobody by nature is meek. And yet the central glory of the gospel is that it can take the proudest man by nature, somebody who is proud and cocky uh, by characteristic naturally, and make that person poor in spirit. So have hope. Have hope. Fourthly, the Beatitudes show clearly the essential and utter difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though she may hate it at first. Our ambition should be to be like Christ. The more like him, the better. And the more like him we become, the more we shall be like, the, more, the less we shall be like everybody who is not a Christian. And keep in mind again, this is not a moral code. This doesn't mean that you are somehow better. We're going to get to why that's not the case. It's not saying that non-Christians can't be moral. In fact, we know that many non-Christians are probably more moral than many Christians. We see that often, right? That's not what this is saying. What it's saying is that we will become new people. We will crave righteousness. Our desire will be for righteousness. Not wealth, money, status, position, publicity. Righteousness is being right with God. Being right with God is what differentiates a Christian from who, someone who is not. And finally, the Beatitudes point to the fact that Christians belong to an entirely different realm. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of earth. So if you read the Beatitudes and say to yourself, I feel that I'm not worthy, and yet I want to be like that, however unworthy you may be. 
If that is your desire and your ambition, then there is new life in you. You are a child of God and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and God's dear son or daughter. So this is me speaking now. I, I would ask yourself that today. Examine your hearts. Do you desire to become poor in spirit? Do you desire to become meek? Do you desire to be um, hungry and thirsty for righteousness? If you, if you can say yes to that, then praise God. Keep seeking his kingdom. But if you don't feel that desire, if you don't feel a desire to be meek or poor in spirit, then pray for that desire. Even if you don't have that desire, it doesn't mean you can't have it. There are many great saints in the church whose lives started without a desire for God, but through prayer came to see their desires changed entirely. There's a great saint in the church, Augustine, who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So if you don't believe, you don't have that desire right now, pray that prayer. So, moving to verse 3, where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why is that first? It's the first because it is the key to all that follows. It's the first because there is no entry into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God without it. Everyone in the kingdom of God is poor in spirit. Everyone is. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and all the other characteristics that come in these Beatitudes are a result of this first one, being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit really means an emptying. It means an outpouring of yourself. While other, the other Beatitudes are a manifestation of fullness. Think of hungering and, and thirsting. That's if you eat and you drink righteousness, it fills you up. But we cannot be filled until we are first empty. You cannot fill a new wine, or with new wine, a vessel which has been partly filled with old wine. The old wine has to be poured out. There are always two sides to the gospel, says Lloyd-Jones. A pulling down and a raising up. This is me speaking here. Some of you may remember the C.S. Lewis when he talks in Mere Christianity, but what happened when he became a Christian? He said he kind of woke up the next day and nothing really changed, right? He said, everything changed, but nothing's changed. And he talked about his life as a Christian as one of renovation, that God came into his life and started renovating it. He said, okay, look, uh, there are a few trusses that need to be fixed. The whole place is going to cave in. And so he started, you know, pulling a few things together and got the house. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the houses, like brick walls were being taken out. New wings were being added. There was a solarium being put in, that type of thing. So the gospel, whenever Jesus is working in our lives, there will be a pulling down of things that don't need to be there. Lloyd-Jones says, remember the words of Simeon, who held Jesus when he was a baby. He said, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many. The fall the taking a part of our lives, comes before the rising again. Conviction must always precede conversion, and the gospel of Christ condemns before it releases. It condemns every idea of the Sermon of the Mount, which thinks of it in terms that something you or I can do ourselves, something that you or I can carry out under our own strength. It comes to us and says, look, there's a mountain you have to scale, those are the heights you have to climb. 
And the first thing you have to do when you look at that mountain, which you're told you must ascend if you want to get the kingdom of heaven, the first thing that you have to realize is that you can't do it. That you're utterly incapable of getting up there yourself. And any attempt to do it on your own strength is proof positive that you don't get it, that you haven't understood it. What our Lord is concerned about here is the spirit. It's a poverty of spirit. It is ultimately a person's attitude towards him or herself. That's what he's talking about, that earlier thing about Christians and non-Christians. You'll never find a greater antithesis to the worldly spirit and outlook than this verse. The whole principle on which life is run at the present time is this. Express yourself. Believe in yourself. Realize the powers that are innate in yourself and let the world see and know them. How often do we see that in the news, media? How often do we think that in our own hearts? Self-confidence, self-assurance, self-reliance. That's what our world wants. But what this verse is talking about is not people confronting one another. It's not about any of us being better or worse than the person in the pew next to you or the person walking down the street in front of our church right now or drinking coffee at the Durand Cafe down the street. We're not better or worse than any of them. We are looking at people face to face with God. If anyone feels anything in the presence of God save an utter poverty of spirit, it ultimately means that you've never faced him. You've never seen him. That's the meaning of this beatitude. It means that when you look at God, you realize that you have nothing to offer. It doesn't mean when you're looking at your friend that, you know, I'm better or worse. It means when you look at God, you have nothing to bring to him. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? There are four things that in classic preacher form, Lloyd-Jones says that it is not. Four things that it doesn't mean to be poor in spirit. First, it doesn't mean that we should be diffident or nervous. Nor should it mean that we should be weak or lacking in courage. To be poor in spirit doesn't mean that you shrink all the time. Some of us are shy, and that's that's totally fine. It's not talking about that. It doesn't mean that you know introverts or extroverts are any more or less poor in spirit. Remember that, that none of these things that, that we have that we're studying in, in these Beatitudes are natural qualities. So it doesn't mean we should be nervous. It doesn't mean that you should put on the pretense of being humble either. He talks about um, a man who says, a deacon that he was, he was visiting once, he says, you know, I'm a mere nobody, a very important, unimportant man, really, somebody who liked to talk about how unimportant he was. He says, that's not the way. Instead, we are to become more like John the Baptist. He must become more. God must become more. I must become less. The person who is truly poor in spirit need not worry about her or his personal appearance or the impression that he or she makes. The person who is poor in spirit will always give the right impression. Third thing, he says, it's not a matter of suppression of personality. You don't have to repress your true self to become poor in spirit. 
you will always find that there's a subtle temptation to think that the only person who is truly poor in spirit is the person who makes a great sacrifice, the person who, like the monks, retires out of life and says, I'm going to make great sacrifices, and that's what makes me poor in spirit. But that's not the biblical way. We can go even one step further, and this is the fourth point, to say that to be poor in spirit is not even to be humble in the sense that we are humbled by an awareness of the vastness of things outside of ourselves. So what does it mean to be positively poor in spirit? If it's not those four things, what is it to be poor in spirit? The best way to answer that is to answer it in terms of Scripture. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, we have a picture of it. It says this, For this is what the high and exalted one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, says God, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. It's the spirit of Gideon. Gideon's not here today. Well, there he is. Your namesake, Gideon. It's the spirit of Gideon, who when the Lord sent an angel to tell him that the great thing that he was going to do, he was going to conquer the Midianites with 300 people, he said, no, this is impossible. I belong to the lowest tribe and the lowest family in that tribe. You find it in Moses, who being called to call the Israelites out of Egypt, felt deeply unworthy of the task that was laid before him and was conscious of his insufficiency and his inadequacy. You find it in David when he said, Lord, who am I that you should come to me? And you get it with Isaiah in exactly the same way. Having had the vision, having God speak to him, he said, I am a man of unclean lips. You see it throughout the whole Old Testament and the people who are seen as righteous in God's eyes. You see it in the New Testament too. You see it perfectly, for instance, in a man like the Apostle Peter, who was naturally aggressive self-assertive and self-confident, a typical man of the modern world, brimful of his confidence and believing in himself. Think of how, think of, think of Peter. Remember how confident he was when the Lord said, you know, Peter, you're going to deny me. He's like, I'm never going to deny you. I'm never going to do that. Right? He's, 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 a, he's a man that you want on a committee. Right? But look at him when he actually sees the Lord. Look at Peter when he says, when he sees the Lord, he sees the Lord for who he is when he sees him as God. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's Peter after he sees Jesus. Look at him afterwards as he pays tribute to the Apostle Paul in 2 Peter 3. But also remember that Peter never ceases to be a bold man. He doesn't become nervous and diffident. His essential personality remains. He's still kind of one of these type of guys, and yet he's poor in spirit. Or look at the Apostle Paul. Here was a man, again, with great powers, and obviously as a natural man, he was fully aware of them. You know, think of the people paying tribute to Paul, laying their robes at Paul's feet after they had stoned Stephen. But in reading his letters to the churches in the New Testament, you find that the fight he had to wage to the end was his life, uh, in his life was the fight against pride. If it is a question of competition on this worldly stuff, he says, he fears no one. 
Then he gives us a list of all the things of which he can boast. Remember, I'm a Jew of Jews. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trained this way. I can, I can smoke you in anything. But having once seen the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, all that became loss. And this man, possessed of such tremendous powers, appeared in Corinth, as we read in the Bible, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Beat you. Smoke you. That is the position right through as he goes on through his task of evangelism in, in Acts. You see again this very confident man coming again with fear and trembling. He asks, who is sufficient for these things? If anyone has a right to feel sufficient, it was Paul. Yet he felt insufficient because he was poor in spirit. Think of the mother of God. Think of Mary, visited by an angel. And what does she say? Yes, I'm the one who's going to bear the Messiah. No. She says, how can this be? She was troubled. That's the mother of God. But most of all, we have to look at the life of our Lord himself. He became a man. He took upon him the likeness of sinful flesh. Though he was equal with God, he did not clutch at the prerogatives of his Godhead. He decided that while he was here on earth, he would live as a man, though he was still God. And this was the result. He said, Jesus says this, I can do nothing of myself. It is the God-man speaking these words, I can do nothing of myself. He also said, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. That's it. If you look at Jesus' prayer life, if you watch him praying and realize that the hours he spent in prayer were towards God, you will see his poverty of spirit and his reliance upon God. That's what is meant by being poor in spirit. It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means us being conscious that we are nothing in the presence of God. It's nothing that we can produce. It's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves. It is the tremendous awareness of our nothingness as we come face to face with God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It means that if we are truly Christian, we shall not rely upon our natural birth. We can't rely upon the fact that we are born to certain families. We can't boast in the fact that we're born into certain nations. We can't build upon our natural temperament, say I'm naturally disciplined and good. You can't believe in and rely upon your natural position in life or any powers that you've been given. You can't rely upon any money or wealth. You can't boast in the education you've received or the particular school or college that you've been to or your ability to work hard or anything of the sort. No, it's that type of thing that the Apostle Paul re regards as dung. Poop, kids, right? It's all that type of stuff that we put our faith in that Apostle Paul says that's just like crap. And it's a hindrance to this greater thing that's why he called it that, because it was getting in the way of him, meeting God. We shall not rely upon our gifts or intelligence or general or special abilities. We can't rely upon our morality or our conduct or good behavior. 
We shall not bank to the slightest extent on the life that we have lived or the life that we're trying to live. We shall regard all of that, all of that stuff that we think is, is what makes us good, what makes us right with God, is done. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. You must be completely delivered from and absent of all of those things. There's a lot of addition here. It is to experience that which Isaiah experienced when he saw God and he said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. So let's ask ourselves some questions. Am I like this? Ask yourself, am I poor in spirit? Ask yourself, how do I really feel about myself as I think about myself? Don't think about yourself in terms of other people. Don't compare yourself to other people. Think about it in terms of God. Think about yourself looking face to face with God. How are you going to regard yourself then? Ask yourself, what do you put your faith in when you take a moment to examine your own heart? What do you put your faith in? How do we become poor in spirit if we're not there? If we answer those questions saying, look, we're not really as poor in spirit as we could be. The answer is that you do not look at yourself or begin by trying to do things to yourself or even to do things for God. That's not the place to start. The more you do that, the more conscious you will be of yourself and the less poor in spirit. The way to become poor in spirit is to look at God. Read this book about him. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read his law. Read what he expects of us. And I encourage you to do this tonight. Contemplate standing before him. When you pray tonight before you go to bed, contemplate standing before God. Look at the Lord Jesus and view him as we see him in the Gospels. The more we do that, the more we shall understand the reaction of the apostles when they were looking at Jesus and he was teaching them and something he had just done. They said, Lord, increase our faith. Look at him. And the more we look at him, the more hopeless we shall feel by ourselves and in and of ourselves. And the more we do that, the poorer will we become in spirit. Look at him. Keep looking at him. And you will have nothing to do yourself because it will be done. By Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. Amen.